So when I tell people that we were self-funded for four years and I started thinking about this in 2015 and it's still roughly the same concept. It's not the same concept, but the same company, a very much bigger evolution of the same company. And it's now 2023. Uh, they're like, how did you keep going? I was just like, I, I am willing this into existence. I know the ideas that I have here are incredibly useful to the industry because everyone I tell it to, they're like, hell yes, I want that to exist. So, and I've, I grew up surrounded by technology in the creative industries. So I need to dedicate my life to making technology in the creative industries way better. Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. On this podcast, we talk to an amazing range of people. We talk to these people about risk. Risk they've taken in their lives, risk they've taken in their careers, when they paid off and when they didn't. And on this episode, I'm blessed to be joined by the one and only Gabriel Isaris. Isaris? Isaris. Isaris. It's it's crazy. It's it's something to do with dyslexia and ADHD. It's just the perfect um, combination for butchering words that I don't recognize initially. Um, But as as, as someone with an equally unusual name or uncommon name, I should say, this is something we're used to, right? Yep. And I also butcher my own name because I have dyslexia as well. So uh, I butcher my own name quite often. And then I butcher the name of my university, which is very long all the time. Okay. Rochester Institute of Technology. And I just... I, I just can't get the words right. I trip right. over it. Every time... Institute, it just... It, I struggle with it. It's funny, right? I mean, we're both, you know, at least semi-intelligent human beings, but there's just these words which, you know, the, the neurodiverse brain just can't handle, which is, yeah. which is interesting. So... What I also find interesting is um, I see a lot of positive correlation, let's say, between neurodiversity and creative ability as well. Um, Obviously, you are an incredibly creative individual. Um, Would love to learn more about your journey in music, where that started. But do you also see that the neurodiversity part plays a a role in that creativity? Yeah, definitely. I, I guess I haven't spent enough time kind of analyzing that and and really researching that to to have very fixed <laughs> like uh thoughts on it but it is yeah my my dad is um, well all, all my family are musicians mm-hmm. my entire family are classical musicians and yes uh some of them are definitely neurodiverse yeah so. okay <laughs> um yeah uh, and yeah it's it's there's there's patent there's uh examples of it all over the world there's loads and loads of neurodiverse people who come up with the most creative incredible ideas so. mm. yeah. yeah i think it's because it's the uh just almost the um just constant requirement to view things slightly differently i was going to say that you know yeah. just just as a survival mechanism right yeah. so therefore when you apply that into a space where there are you don't have the same rules and regulations Obviously, that can lead to some really interesting things. So, you're, you're com- you come from a family of classical musicians. Yes. Um, tell me more about that. What, what does that mean? <laughs> um, so, As my professional professional music, classical yeah. musicians. My dad is a cellist. My mum was a flautist. Uh, my uh, I have two aunts, two uncles, who are professional musicians. Uh, my now wife is a professional musician. Uh, they, my dad is a soloist, so he travels around the world and plays with different orchestras. Mm-hmm. My wife is a leader of a quartet, uh, which is very similar to a startup, actually. She's been working on it eight years, and then they kind of 
found product market fit this year. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> quartet terms. Um, and uh, they're doing incredibly well now. That's and, great. Um, and then, yeah, my grandfather was a amateur uh, pianist. Uh, sorry, violinist. My grandmother was an amateur pianist. My great-grandfather was a uh, composer and musician. Uh, wow. And, yeah, that's just a massive history of uh of music in my family that's fascinating yeah. and and what what do you think that comes from is that just the case of um you know it's in the family business and therefore there was great opportunities for um you know introduction to the space or is it just a, a total I, creative streak i i think there might be a creative streak like my I, I don't know exactly where it came from. My It seems to jump a generation as well okay. because my, my grandparents, they were amateurs, I believe. At least my dad, my granddad was. He was a scientist but an amateur violinist. Um, and his dad was the professional and his son <laughs> and it was kids. And now I am not a professional musician. So it's like uh, yeah every second generation. But I we just like... I knew music. I knew how to understand and read music before I knew how to understand and read English. Wow. So, like, it was, like, just pumped into my veins from day one. Like, uh, there's videos of me sitting next to my dad and uh, listening to him practice from less than a few months old. Wow. And I've always had a bedroom, like, really close to the music room, and I just, all the time I hear it. So, it was just, yeah, it was pumped into... My veins, kind yeah. of. Um, but I don't know. We, of my generation, one cousin has gone into music mm -hmm. and another has gone into law and another, well, myself, uh, gone into tech. But all three of us do play uh, musical instruments mm -hmm. at pretty decently high levels. Uh, I would be better if I practiced, but <laughs> I don't have time to practice. Right, yeah. Um, Being the entrepreneur is enough of a full-time yeah. job, let alone being but a cellist. But I am quite good at... Um, sight reading was just something I was taught mm -hmm. as a kid so it very much frustrated my dad and my wife earlier this year when I picked up a cello after not touching it for 12 months and I sight read a piece with my dad and and uh, he and I hit I didn't hit all the notes but I hit sure. most of them enough to the point that they were like I wish you were worse wow. because they would like uh, get you to practice more <laughs> yeah 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 it's really interesting actually the point you make about it skipping a generation and um i can't remember which psychotherapist was talking about this but there's the idea that um often the children are looking to complete or excel in areas where maybe the parents didn't excel in as much so you see it a lot with like yeah. very successful businessmen and then you know they've who have totally denied creative spiritual element in their lives and you see the generation uh beyond that yeah. then go down a very spiritual route they don't want to be involved with business and money and it's, it's really, really interesting I, I see it a lot with that that generational skip for me i think i have a bit of a chip on my shoulder which i try and ignore but um so much of my childhood was defined by my dad mm. because i uh started cello when i was five he was a cellist or is a cellist um and when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, I'd be going to music camps. People would recognize my last name and they'd be like, oh, you're related to him. Mm -hmm. And when I was 12, I got the comment, oh, you're related to him. You sh I expected you to be better. Oof. I'm like, I'm 12. <laughs> so that's pretty brutal. So I was like a lot of the time I was defined by him. Like it wasn't intentional. It's just how the world works. Mm -hmm. And so I... When I 
like started coming up with ideas for companies, I was like, oh, this is a way that I can kind of still be true to my family, mm -hmm. like heritage of music and the creative industries, but I can do it in my own way. And I don't have to mention my dad's name. Uh, I get, my last name gets recognized once in every six months or something like that. When someone's um, a fan of classical music and I'm like, yeah, that's my dad. Uh, yeah. yeah. But okay, that, that's really interesting. And so with that in mind, it was still always going to be a case of, even if not going down the route of being a professional performer, um, you still knew that you wanted to exist within the world of music. I knew I wanted to exist within the world of the creative industries. Okay. Um, well, I guess, yeah, I, I've gone through a lot of different things, actually, so I, I'm not sure about that. The, uh, when I finally started finding my feet is when I was like, okay, creative industries is definitely my strong point, and mm -hmm. I love it. I'm super passionate about it, but I didn't know in what angle. So when I was a kid, when I started being told uh, they expected me to be better, I was like, okay, uh, so what else is there in the world? And I actually I dabbled in the idea of becoming an architect because okay. I love building things. I have a very visual memory. I can remember places incredibly well. Like wow. when I was a kid, I would go on holiday places and I'd come home and I'd draw layouts of like That's floor plans of the, wow. of the place from memory. Oh, not exactly to scale, but I'd get th most things on point and then I'd take the floor plans back, back the next time. That's and I'd be amazing. Like, I mean, so. that's, that's genuinely incredible. As someone who really struggles with visualization, I, can, I literally cannot imagine having that level of photographic memory. Except it's only for places. Mm. If I look at people, I, I can't recognize anyone. I've, I've had conversations with people where I describe this amazing person that I've met and I've suddenly realized it's the person I'm talking to that I've <laughs> I'm describing. Well, well that I do resonate <laughs> with. That, that, that I understand completely. Um, okay, that, that's that's really interesting. So then, so you were exploring that route, but then ultimately, because you were a filmmaker for a while as well. So right? yeah, that was 16-ish when I was just uh, like exploring architecture. Um, and I can't remember exactly what my mum told me about studying architecture, but it put me right off okay. uh, because she'd studied architecture. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Um, and then I got really, really into films, but like not watching the actual films. Mm -hmm. I had the extended Lord of the Rings behind like uh, like massive, I think, 19 disc DVD set. And obviously six discs were the three extended movies, mm -hmm. but the other 12, 13 discs were the behind the scenes of everything that they did to make those movies wow and i would watch those endlessly like uh audio commentaries um deep dives and i was like wow filmmaking is incredible uh i also did that with the harry potter movies and definitely star wars at some point but lo loads of big movies yeah. i wouldn't really i'd watch the movie a couple times and then i'd watch all the behind the you, scenes you're really like, getting into the thick of it yeah ironically three film franchises that i've never seen Really amazing. Yeah. Okay, well, well I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've watched the first one of all of those, but I don't know. For me, it just um, weirdly because I, I love sci-fi. I don't like fantasy. To be okay. fair, I've never been a, a fan of fantasy. I do love sci-fi. Some, you know, two thousand one is probably my favorite film. Mm. Uh, but I just could never get into Star Wars. I don't oh. know why. Okay. Well, I, I haven't tried it for so long. You like, could try again. there is part <laughs> of me that feels like I should re-engage with it because. You know, so many people can't be wrong, yeah. but uh, yeah, it just never worked for me. I mean, they can be, but yeah. you know, <laughs> there's a lot of examples of that. Anyways, um, there's actually the the most recent Star Wars series that was absolutely brilliant, and you didn't need to know anything about the Star Wars world is Andor okay. on Disney I, Plus. Oh, Disney Plus, fine. Okay, 
you should check that out. All right, I'll give it a go. Yeah. I will. I will make that commitment <laughs> and I will let you know. It's just it's good quality television without the Star Wars bit, but it happens to be in the Star Wars universe. Okay, sounds good. Um, yeah, so I, I was fascinated by film and I decided to uh, get a film degree. And I I did some filming on, at uh, high school, um, made a silly stop motion film, mm-hmm. which was very fun and took way too long. Um, called Blue, which is, I think it's still on YouTube or Vimeo. But yeah, if people go to my personal Maybe website, we can they can link watch it. it. Here. Yeah. here it is. Press the button. <laughs> yeah. um, and that and some grades of mine got me accepted into my university, which mm-hmm. was Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York. And did you want to go to that university specifically or did you just want to get out of the UK for university? What was the thinking? I'm an only child, so I wanted to get away from uh, home to Understood. show that I could live on my own. Yep. Uh, I went to the American school in London, the high school. Okay. And so the natural follow on from American uh, high school was American University. And I applied to a bunch of places. RIT is the only place that does hands on filmmaking. So when you first get there, instead of studying any theory about this is how someone made a movie and this is why it's amazing, they said, here's a uh, Bolex 8mm film camera, go and make a movie with that. And we actually, I don't think they do that anymore, but when I went there, we had to splice film. Um, We were based in the same city as Kodak, so our film got processed by Kodak and then sent back to us. That's cool. And it was a really, really cool introduction into how films used to have to be made. Yeah. Um, And we had a lot of appreciation for the slow, methodical work of filmmaking with splicing and taping film together Mm. that... uh, that like, does not exist does anymore. not exist yeah. for most movies anymore sure. um so yeah i i went into film studies and i worked on that i got my degree in film so i have a degree in filmmaking but near the end of that degree i realized that i'm a very passionate person about how film is created but i'm not very good at making films myself okay, okay. uh retrospectively i figured out why which is filmmakers have this incredible ability of having an end date to their uh, project and everything has to be done by that end date Mm -hmm. and they hand it off and it is done. They're not allowed to touch it anymore. At least big time filmmakers, unless you're George Lucas, but yeah. Sure. Um, And I I don't work that way. I work like a founder. I work iteratively. I put something out. I get feedback on it. I get, uh, Mm. I iterate. I put something out, and that doesn't work with film. It's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't work with film. I think one of the things that I found very interesting with um, the uh, – this is not exactly the most current thing, but the big move from you know traditional consumption of, of music to Spotify and, and other streaming services, for example, was the way that artists were then able to start iterating and almost rewriting um, you know art that they released. I think one of the first – really high-profile case of that was uh, The Life of Pablo, which was the Kanye West album from 2016. And uh, they were talking about this release date in the way that you're talking about. And then there was like eight, nine, ten iterations of that album released daily after he initially released it with different track listings and verses getting changed, which I thought was really, really interesting. And I think it's not something um, which is utilised enough in streaming and, and music right now although it was at that time it was it seemed to be quite popular but yeah you're right with film it's that's not possible yeah once I mean, it's out it's out right i mean to a point there's there's a few cases of like i think marvel films and other films where they've released and then they've been like 
oh, we need to add like a post-credit scene or we need to change something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, there's a few, very, very few cases of that. But I think that I've read cases of, wow. of that. And there's also user, there's a, there's audience testing, which is a level of that. Mm-hmm. But that comes at the very end of the process. Once the film is mostly there, then you do audience testing. So there's a, a Jackson Pollock line in the origin, original Guardians of the Galaxy, which is hilariously mistasteful, but it's 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 hilarious. And apparently they were going to cut that, mm-hmm. and then it just received amazing audience testing responses. So they were like, "Okay, never mind, we're putting it in." Yeah. Um. So there is an uh, an element to that in film, but it's the filmmaker has to do most of the filming. They don't uh, release the um like the the previs <laughs> and like the. I, I wonder how much generative AI is going to change that. Right. You yeah. Create the trailer first, do the audience testing, and then actually film it based on. You know the response to the trailer, right? I I really hope that's not how it goes. Oh, of course, of course, we've got to hope not. But yeah. I mean, you know, it's yeah, it's just a matter of time. Right? There's going to be I I think there's there's also going to be a pushback in a lot of like there will be there was a concern. I heard this interesting comment the other day. There was a a concern when photography came out that painting would no longer be relevant. Okay, and they the person making this argument said that can't remember who was making this but they basically said the same is going to be with uh ai is yes loads of people will use ai as a tool mm-hmm. and it'll be great but there will be some people who appreciate the older standard yeah and they will stick to it and there will be loads of consumers who love that a hundred percent it's the same reason why vinyls still sell yes right you in know, fact vinyls doing better than <laughs> exactly yeah. so yeah of course it will I, I think um that 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 is the reality of the case i think um where it does get really interesting is the current Screen Actor Guild protests going on yep. at the moment. Um, I would say that's probably the first example, or first very, very public example of AI or counter-AI protests. Yeah. Maybe protests is a bit of a strong word to use, at least demonstrations. Yeah. But these are obviously people with reputations to uphold and everything else. As soon as that trickles down into other industries where maybe they don't have the same level of scrutiny as actors do, um, uh, the same level of publicity that actors do. I think that's uh, a very interesting indication of the future of anti-AI demonstrations going industry to industry. And I think within 12 months from now, we'll see the first anti-AI riots, depending on which industries they impact. But it's um, it feels like an inevitability at this point. Yeah, yeah and it's how... Yeah, as as a young entrepreneur who obviously is, I'm constantly dabbling in AI. I'm like, okay, I'm aware I need to use this in good ways, mm-hmm. and I need to use this, build this into my technology. But it shouldn't define us. It should be a tool that uh, I use to help solve a problem that my users mm-hmm. are having. And how do I do it in a way that is respectful of our users and, but also like moves our in our technology yeah like leaps and bounds forward yeah absolutely well i think the great thing about about your business um from a defensibility perspective is obviously although you're utilizing technology to bring people together ultimately you're still exploring physical real world places yeah and that's something which ai cannot at least for now yeah <laughs> uh re- really you know mess yeah. with so i think that's that's very strong yeah post post fundraiser in my plans i even have like specific types of content that we want to like invest into mm-hmm. that cannot be replicated uh by ai because they are based on real world experience okay go on um well i don't want to give the game away too much yeah but basically it will be uh one one piece of content will be reviews on theater shows Mm -hmm. like 
and you can't send an AI to go and do a review on a yeah. on a never digitized theater show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, nice. That's yeah. cool. That's really good. That's good. And and th- I think from uh, like an SEO uh, perspective, having those areas of content where it cannot be replicated in that way that that's a really nice winning strategy. Yeah. So there's a we I think we have three different key uh, ideas like that that are things that are useful for the sector mm-hmm. or, or interesting to the sector um, but cannot be replicated by AI because like half the articles can be written by AI if we really get to that point and um, like our copywriters want to do bits and bobs of like mm-hmm. half AI, half human, but it still requires a human experience in the first place to yes. inspire the article. Very cool. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, let's let's get back to your story <laughs> yeah. on that side. Um, so you've, you've come to the conclusion that Filmmaking is not for you. Yep. Um, when do you then say, okay, well, I'm now going to pivot into technology? So during my film degree, when I realized that film was maybe not for me, I then was like, okay, what is for me? I love building things. I love technology. I am an early adopter. I used to buy a load of stuff on Kickstarter. I mm-hmm. had the original Pebble uh, smartwatch. Nice. Actually, all generations of that. Uh, I own a Google Glass. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. That, <laughs> so, is, that is, yeah, that's yeah. niche. <clears throat> Um, I couldn't quite acquire a, uh, what was it, the the Microsoft um, HoloLens, but my friend did, so okay. we used that together. I've used the HoloLens, yep. actually really, really cool. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I love early early stage tech, um, and I've always been fas- uh, passionate about it and interested by it, so I decided to get a programming degree as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a degree at RIT, which is Web and Mobile Application Development, which is basically uh, I learned uh, basic web uh, coding as well as uh, Swift, is it Swift for iOS mm-hmm. and uh, Java, uh, so for um, Android, and I did basic levels of that. Mm-hmm. I also learned during that degree. I'm not very good at coding, okay, <laughs> but I, I just don't have the the patience for it. I have a, a level of dyslexia, so I miss a lot of things. Yeah, I'm very good at spelling for someone with dyslexia, but I miss everything else. So, um, well, I, uh, that actually makes sense, right? Yeah. Because it's we we just memorize the word rather than read the word. So we yeah. memorize the letters. We yeah. don't actually read them. So when we're seeing something which isn't already in the bank of memorized images, yeah. then it's yeah, yeah, it's a free for all. Exactly, that's a g- great way of explaining it. So um, yeah, I and I also have a, a not a, a strong level of ADHD, but I have a level mm-hmm. of ADD. So it makes it very hard to get into those long programming sessions and just stare at lines of code. Yeah. Um, so I I got most of that degree um, and I really love programming. Just I love kind of coming up with concepts that need programming for them, but I'm very good at coming up with the concepts and then telling someone else how to mm-hmm. implement it. And Good skill for a founder. Yep. And in 2015 or so, I don't know what clicked. I worked at uh, the tech crew on university, so I was involved in every event on ca- or most events on campus, mm-hmm. which uh, tech crew basically meant we did the sounds, the lights, and the power and the staging for every event on campus, whether it was a small club event for 10 people. Mm-hmm. But we also had a massive stage so we hosted maroon five macklemore wow. snoop dogg like bob wow. dylan big names no way. and i worked on shows with them that's cool so i saw the whole gamut of event planning as well and it was some combination of event planning music film uh, i also worked as a photographer mm-hmm. and programming all of that mashed up in my head i started coming up with ideas i was like 
these industries <clears throat> all have the same problem, mm-hmm. but very few people are in all three of those industries and even fewer people have programming knowledge to realize that there's a simple way to build this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kept coming up with idea after idea after idea for that exact like um, description. And I was like, okay, well, got these ideas. How do I make a company? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I spent quite a while uh, in my bedroom trying to figure out how to start a company. I think it's interesting because what you're getting to there is something that I always advise any founder to really, really think about when they're building a company, which is don't fall in love with the solution, fall in love with the problem, right? Because the solution and the way that we get there is always going to iterate and optimize yeah. and change. It's You have to really love the problem yeah. and love the space, which clearly you do. Yeah. So how long did it take you from that mishmash of ideas and concepts and, and possible businesses to actually then starting building something which you thought, okay, this is it. What did that look like for you? It took me a long time. Um, I moved back home and spent a lot of time in my bedroom uh, (laughs) trying to come up with ideas or trying to not come up with ideas. I had loads of ideas, how to to implement them. Um, So I came up with a spreadsheet, which I still have somewhere, which is every single idea that I had that all fit under this one roof of uh, the intersection of creativity and technology. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like 150 ideas long and every yeah. single one of them could have been in a business. I got absolutely nowhere trying to figure it out myself. And this was 2016. I was also very active on Facebook, which luckily I'm not anymore, uh, dealing with all of the fun <laughs> votings <laughs> that were happening uh, at right, that right, time. Right. I, did, I didn't know if you meant... Because I, for me, 2016, 2015, 2016... Um, that was one of the most amazing periods of time in order, in terms of getting significant traction on social platforms organically. Yeah. Right. So wh- that was when I was running Real Sport, which I, I think I told you about last time we spoke. And then you know you could release some content, uh, put zero budget behind it, and if you got lucky, twelve and a half million views. I mean, yep. it was it was a crazy time. Um, yep. So I didn't know if you were exploring. No, that we more more down the rabbit hole of, of <laughs> politics. Yeah. What we did do, what we we did like test the idea we i was involved in a lot of groups at that time yeah, on facebook that was it groups were so yeah. powerful at that time and i did uh constantly tell people about my ideas and ask them for feedback so right. i was talking to not only my friends all of my friends except for the the programmers every single one of them is in like the creative industry so i had a massive test market just in my own network right so i talked to friends i talked to uh people on facebook and I was also working odd job photography and theater jobs. And I was telling everyone about this weird company called DBMA, which was the first uh, name of it, mm-hmm. which stood for Database of Music and Artists. It was IMDB for art- uh, for music. That oh, was okay. the original concept that I was like, okay, this is an okay one. Let's go with that. Turns out there are multiple of those. There's Discogs and a couple others. Yep. And uh, the original spark that led me down the route to where I am today was thinking, okay, if I was to build this, how would I get better data than them because I had I there's a lot of actors and musicians who I know who uh, said that their database online sites are cool in theory but all of their a lot of their data is just wacky yeah um, so I thought how do I get better data I built something that's useful a tool that mm-hmm. people would enjoy using and around the same time I went into a program called Founder Institute yep which is an incubator program and it was 2018, early 2018 when I went into that. So I'd spent a lot of time faffing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I went into Founder Institute and they said, love all your ideas, 
But what you're trying to build is like the size of Amazon. Mm. <laughs> Start with one thing. Yes. So they help me narrow down my ideas by talking to customers saying, okay, well, we have these three ideas. One was a fintech. I can't actually remember exactly what it was. Uh, one I simply cannot remember. And one was Airbnb for music rehearsal spaces mm -hmm. in people's living rooms. Mm -hmm. And we uh, pitched those ideas to a lot of customers. Everyone was excited about the last one. So I was like, okay, I'll try and figure out how to build that. It took me a long time. Uh, we had about five false starts where we built something and then realized that actually people using it would have a terrible experience. So probably people wouldn't use it. Mm. So we talked to a lot of people. We had a venues lined up before we had a website. We had customers lined up before we had a website. I wish I'd spent more time doing that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know. You live and learn. So, so let me just j jump in here on this part because I think this is um, something which, you know, I'm really passionate about with the podcast in terms of, um, you know, amplifying stories where people can take inspiration from them. So, bringing yourself back to that point, 2018 Founders Institute, you spent two years working on this idea, and you're still formulating things, and it's still, you know, pre-product everything else. How, where are you mentally at that time, and how are you? finding that you're staying engaged yeah how you find especially as someone who's impatient adhd yeah. dyslexic i get it yeah. completely right how, how are you finding that stage saying like no like let's let's keep on hammering away at this even though it's it's not going as quickly as probably you'd hoped at that time yeah well everyone everyone who said like heard that i was working on a startup they were like oh startups they explode and they're amazing and i had a lot of people come in work for me for a bit like help with things and then be disappointed by how slow it was going and leave. Mm. And that was tough. Like that is tough. It is. You have to have someone in your life who is supporting you. It doesn't have to be a co-founder. I had co-founders at the time, but we parted ways amicably. They're still shareholders, but um, they like small shareholders. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the, like it wasn't their idea. Uh, I ended up putting money into the business. They didn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, they didn't have the time or the resources to dedicate themselves as much as I did. So, yeah, um, they, yeah, we parted ways amicably, but we, I had them as supporters. One of the reasons they still have equity is because they supported me when almost no one else did. Mm, fine. Um, but and that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. There was, uh, so them, uh, that was very, very helpful because they were like, your ideas are amazing. They need to be in the world. Keep going. That was, I think, something that Chuck said once. Mm. Um, and then I had my dad, luckily, who's very supportive in his own way. <laughs> um, and he, yeah, he was happy to support me any way he could. Uh, letting me live in his flat was one of them. And then I got lucky and I started dating an amazing person around the same time that I started working on Tutti. Mm -hmm. And she was incredibly supportive. So she was still in university in the Guildhall School of Music at the time. But she was, at some point, she got fed up with coming home and asking me if I'd done any work on my startup and me being like, no, I spend all the time on Facebook and Netflix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she was like, okay, you're either going to do this or you're not. Yeah, which is, which is fair. <laughs> which is yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. So she helped build a work ethic that I never had before. Wow. And now I have a ridiculous work ethic. Um, so even on the worst days, I will get myself out of bed before nine and I'll that's amazing. things. That's amazing. Genuinely, I think yeah. that's, uh, you know, that, that, that is the sign of a real partnership Yeah. Um, as well. But yeah, you know, it's, it's I, I, I'm actually so happy you, you 
said that because there are people who I speak to who if they don't have a work ethic and they feel resigned that they'll never have a work ethic. But that's a great example of that. No, you can unlock that part of yourself you with the right support and everything else. I think that's a fascinating part. I'd love to, to learn more about that. Yeah, I guess I it's I didn't journal at the time, which I kind of wish I had. Uh, so I don't know how like quickly it progressed, mm-hmm. but I do know when I came back from university, I was sitting in my room playing Halo yeah. and <laughs> watching Netflix and uh, being on Facebook and occasionally writing down ideas on my spreadsheet. Sure. And I evolved that to 2019 where every single day I would get out of bed early and I would try and uh, make this company a reality. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the middle, it did take years. It took years. And I can't believe how quickly time has passed since I graduated university. But at the same time, it is really weird as well because when I left university, I had loads of friends in software engineering. They've all gone into these amazing tech companies mm-hmm. and I saw them doing brilliantly, getting uh, like uh, promotion after promotion, making mm-hmm. loads of money. And here I was in my bedroom making just enough money to survive with my side gigs and uh, being incredibly depressed and um, like... Uh, like jealous of them mm. and now when i talk to those same people today they're like wow you've built something out of nothing that yeah. like massive companies including the bbc have used yeah and that is incredible so it yeah it's um Just, anyways it's, it, well no it's a testament to perseverance yes right? it, it is really very is. much perseverance when i tell people that we were self-funded for four years and i started thinking about this in 2015 and it's still roughly the same concept Mm -hmm. it's not the same concept but the same company a very much bigger evolution of the same company and it's now 2023 yeah uh they're like how did you keep going i was just like yeah i i am willing this into existence i know the ideas that i have here are incredibly useful to the industry because everyone i tell it to they're like hell yes i want that to exist Mm -hmm. So, and I've, I grew up surrounded by technology in the creative industries. Yeah. So I need to dedicate my life to making technology in the creative industries way better. Yeah. And, um, and I think, again, this is another amazing example of why it's so important to genuinely fall in love with that problem. Yeah. You know, if you were doing this because actually you see an opportunity rather than actually this is something you want to solve, yeah. maybe the perseverance isn't there. Maybe the, the the desire to will this into reality isn't there. So I think that's why when you find your purpose, and maybe purpose is too strong for this, I don't know. You, you can tell me. But when you find something which genuinely ignites that passion, say, no, 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 this needs to exist, um, that's how you do it, right? Yeah. You focus on that. Yeah. I think the... Well, it's really interesting. I always had loads of different taglines and missions and ideas of why I was doing it and what I care about and what the big mission is. And it wasn't until after my crowd raise last year mm-hmm. that I actually figured out a simple way of explaining it, mm-hmm. which is we want to give creators more time to create. That is it. I spent a lot of time uh, watching, working in the creative industries and watching my fellow creator friends just waste so much time on admin and tangential things to the creative process. Mm. And people get into the creative arts to create, not to do admin. Yeah, Unless you're an arts administrator, but <laughs> fair, yeah. Um, and they, yeah, and that's, they get frustrated by the amount of 
uh, admin that is between inspiration and execution. Yeah. So and flipping between the two is so difficult. Yeah. As well, right? Yeah. You know, you need to protect that creative energy. Yeah. Doing the admin side is is so antithetical to that. It's yeah. almost it soul drains. destroying. It, yeah, yeah, it's creatively draining. I haven't found a good way of putting that phrase into the mm. into the tagline, but it, it is quite literally create. It drains your creativity doing that admin. So, uh, what we want to do is automate or simplify any of that creatively draining admin. And just give people more time to create. Mm-hmm. And we are using all sorts of different technologies to do that. Um, but yeah, we've kind of jumped around a bit. Of course. Um, that's, that's what I expect. Yeah. People with ADHD having a conversation. Yeah. What, what did you want? Something linear. I haven't really explained what the business is. But yeah. Anyways. Um, no, no. Go for the good I opportunity. Guess, tell, us, tell us how it works. Yeah. So I guess the, I can jump back. So talking about nonlinear. Uh, the idea in 2018 was Airbnb for music rehearsal mm-hmm. spaces. We realized that was too niche way, like, really quickly. Uh, like, there's people love that concept, and we still help people with that, but we were never going to make much money. Isn't yeah, the frequency Sorry, isn't yeah. there. Or, yeah, like, the bookings were 10 to 20 pounds, mm-hmm. and you're not going to make, if you're doing 10% commission on a 20 pound booking, you're not going to make that much money. So, we evolved it into Airbnb for creative space. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we also rebrand, rebranded at that time to Tutti, which Tutti is a callback to my background. Tutti is written in every orchestra score, no matter where in the world you are. I've been in orchestras in China, in Vietnam, uh, in Germany, in UK. Tutti is written above the orchestra score when the entire orchestra comes in. So it's all together. And we always, I've always been passionate about kind of um, giving the company an ethos and a sense of altogetherness, equality, supportiveness and that name nailed it on being relevant to the industry as well as having that ethos and uh in 2020 i think it was during the pandemic we rebranded to the colors that we are today Mm -hmm. which one stand out like people were just like you have too many colors i'm like no it stands out from every other logo it is perfect yeah and two each of the colors was chosen hilariously uh by us taking a color wheel and then taking the different disciplines that we supported music, theater, dance, film, and photography at the time and overlaying the color wheel to the, uh, to those disciplines and then laying music to blue because music was our first one and blue was our first one. Okay. And then <laughs> the other, the other, uh, things were chosen. So you've ended up with uh, blue, red, green, purple, orange. Yep. Nice. Um, and yeah. And they also, it's similar to the pride flag intentionally, mm-hmm. but it's not the pride flag. Mm-hmm. Um, again, promoting equality and um, yeah, supportiveness and collaboration. Anyways, I got off track. Uh, so <laughs> music, Airbnb for music rehearsal spaces becomes Airbnb for creative space. And that was 2019. Uh, 2020 hit, uh, or I mean the pandemic hit and we're dealing with in-person event spaces mm. and everyone was like, okay, just pivot to something online. We tested an online business for two weeks. We built a new website, got a couple hundred users in two weeks. And then we were like, we don't love this. We What was it? It was uh, Uber for creative skills. It's a terrible way of ex- explaining it. It was basically uh, Fiverr, kind of. Okay. Uh, so you could share your uh, creative skills online and uh, people other could pay you for your creative skills. But it was like acting, uh, right. teaching, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, music teaching. Um, 
voiceovers, stuff that like sense. that. Makes sense. Fiverr for creatives. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So made sense, but my passion, because of my passion in events at RIT, my passion is in-person events. And I'm very good at in-person events. Uh, anyone who went to my wedding will tell me that. Uh, so the, yeah, so we decided after two weeks, actually, no, in-person events are going to come back. Sure. So let's build our infrastructure technology during the pandemic and just be ready for a massive influx of events. And I worked full-time through the pandemic with two engineers in India. Mm -hmm. and we built the entire infrastructure that is running our site today. And I'm so glad we did that. Uh, it was very quiet. It was very nice. It taught me how to work with developers. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was, I mean, we had no bookings, but luckily we had no investors being like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you're right as well. There were lots of companies that I saw, which, you know, when you're at a certain stage of revenue, especially if you're venture backed, the decision to put your head under the parapet during COVID was not possible, right? You've got to pursue that growth anyway. And a lot of those companies made make or break pivots knowing that they would never be able to come back. But if you were at the really early stage at that time, especially as you said, no investor pressure, amazing time to build for the future. Yeah. So we got lucky with timing on that. And we built the technology. Obviously, it was three of us, so we didn't build as fast as we would have liked. But sure. we got the main technology there. And our tech now has been compared to companies with 100 times our funding as an equal. Wow. So, like, we did something right during that time. The, yeah. And then after the pandemic, we, well, after the pandemic, uh, in March 2021, we decided to turn on marketing back on. And we focused a bit on uh, quite a bit on sales and we grew from 200 listings to a thousand listings mm -hmm. in five months amazing and we were like great we're doing well time to go fundraise yeah uh we didn't get anywhere <laughs> because i had no idea how to fundraise but i did learn how not to fundraise which was fun well that's always a good <laughs> guy right <laughs> yeah and we also learned that in order to build a marketplace business you're just going to have to have ridiculous amounts of funding, mm -hmm. especially when you have competitors who are so well-funded. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time while we were fundraising, talking to our customers, and we discovered that 90%, I thought it was, through intuition, I thought it was probably going to be close to 50%, but from our polls, 90% of our venues had no software behind them. They have uh, like spreadsheets, Google Calendar, email, phone, and they received bookings from 12 different websites. Right. And we said, okay, that seems like an absolute mess. Uh, how would you feel about us building? Like, would you pay for software if we built it? Yeah. And the answer was overwhelmingly yes. Yeah. And then we started talking with them like, okay, what if we build this feature, this feature, this feature? Um, we tested that really bad examples of the questions. I actually asked much more active questions but i can't remember them right now but for illustrative purposes, yeah. Yeah. Illustrative, yeah um and yeah and we had long conversations with every host that was willing to talk to us which was about 20 at the time mm. um and we did polls with another 50 and i, I think it's a, a great yeah. model by the way i think um you know one of the most uh successful um uses of, of that type of model was open table you know yeah. what they did is amazing pure SaaS enabled marketplace 
required ridiculous amount of critical mass for the bookings the booking discovery to work yeah. but building that back end table booking system which they could then um you know sell into these restaurants and you know open tables I was on Open Table's website today yeah. because we're d- building a feature not dissimilar to so- one of theirs. And I was like, okay, ours isn't working perfectly. How does Open Table do Yeah, it? yeah. I mean, look, SaaS-enabled marketplaces are, are yeah. brilliant and they're, they, you know, it's a really amazing way of building strong recurring revenues whilst you're waiting for the marketplace model to work and, yeah. and you know, take rates to really come into play. So I think it's a great, great way of doing it. Yeah. And then the interesting thing with how, because I have all of the experience in the creative industries, I know how artists work but we are actually building the software to start with for venues Mm -hmm. but every time i look at the software i'm like this software could be so easily adapted to work for the other side of the market Mm -hmm. so it looks like that the well our plan right now is to build for venues because we're not going to do everyone at once that would just it's just too much yeah um we're getting it working for venues but then we will use the baseline of that software and build similar software for artists cool and uh, we now describe ourselves, depending on who we're talking to, we describe ourselves as an operating system for the creative industries. Mm-hmm. And that is where we're going. We'll have SaaS for both sides. We'll have a marketplace combining them. And we're going to have a bunch of tools around that as well. Um, so there's a lot coming. Yep. <laughs> but we're, uh, yeah, B2B SaaS enabled marketplace for venues uh, and creators right now. Love that. Okay. That is a perfect segue then into the, the last part of the show, which is five questions I ask every guest who comes on. Um, what's the single biggest risk you've ever taken and what was the outcome? Uh, outcome hasn't been seen yet, but investing my own money into this business. Yeah. Um, I I did that for a while. Uh, I was in a very, very fortunate position to have a bit of money. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized that not everyone is in that position but i yeah i lucked out and instead of holding on to it uh and putting it into a like a a secure savings account well i did that for some of it but um i set aside quite a lot to get this company off the ground Mm -hmm. and we will see in a few years uh if that was a wise choice or not but we got to the point where we really had traction and could prove that people wanted this mm-hmm. because I think at the point that we did our first fundraise, we had over 500 people had already used it. Okay. So, um, there's good traction there. There was decent traction. Yeah. And now there's even, even more and it's just, yeah, it's growing, growing, growing. Um, so yeah, biggest risk was that. Nice. Okay. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I think as entrepreneurs, that's, uh, you know, one of the biggest indicators of belief to the market as well. And from, you know, my perspective as an angel investor, whenever I've got a, a founder who's invested their own, obviously so much of their time, energy, sweat, blood, yeah. tears, all the rest, but when they've also got skin in the game in that way, it's, yeah, it's, it's powerful. Yeah. Okay. What are you proudest of? Does it all have to be about the company? No, no. <laughs> these are totally open-ended. We've had the total spectrum of answers to these questions i i guess i'm not to sound like arrogant but i i'm quite proud of my personal evolution mm-hmm. as a as an individual because as a teenager i was just a super awkward kid who didn't want to talk to anyone um in university i was very outgoing but lacked all of the confidence in the world mm-hmm. i could never have more than like five word conversation with girls <laughs> and 
uh, it's in part thanks to my wife mm-hmm. um, that uh, I have gained so much confidence recently. But it's in part thanks to Tutti. It's in th- part thanks to uh, like being self-aware and working on myself. Like I knew that I was not good at public speaking, so I put mm-hmm. myself out into public speaking situations. Right. And I am just generally, yeah, I do a lot of things to try and get myself into uncomfortable zones so that I can try and evolve, force my force myself to evolve. That's awesome. Um, and the one thing that I'm still missing that I still need to do, do yeah, better is, is uh, exercise more. But I, I will get there. Um, so, yeah, that's, I'd say. That's, that's an awesome answer. That's a really good answer. Okay, my next one for you is, is there anything you wish you did differently? Yes. Every, so much, but I, I, I uh, love the honesty. There. Also, don't want to. I do my best not to like live in the past. Yeah. So, um, but if I was to look back, I would have gone into an incubator earlier. I would have done Founder Institute like back in 2016 rather so, than. So you found that program really useful. Yeah, yeah. incredibly useful. I now mentor for it, and I oh, mentor, nice. I mentor for TechStars and a couple other programs like that because I found programs like that so useful, and I want. Uh, to mentor people or to support people the way that the best mentors at those programs mm-hmm. mentored me, nice. which is really actionable. Like, I like this. Uh, this doesn't make sense. Have you thought about doing this? Yeah. Stuff like that really quick. Um, Great. So, yeah, I do. Um, so Founder Institute, that's one. But also, I got the advice from people early on that I should go and work at a different small startup before while I was coming up with the ideas for mine. Okay. I didn't do that. And I wish I had because mm. I would have learned from the side seat uh, what not to do, what to do, a few other things. I could have gotten really stuck in. The only benefit of not doing that is I can imagine I would have gotten really passionate about mm. that one startup and I may not have ever left to go and do my own. Mm. Um, the same thing is true for uh, like... There are companies who have just blown up on YouTube who I knew about when they had less than 100,000 followers. And I did reach out to a couple of them and say, hey, can I come work for you? Yeah. Luckily, no, none of them replied yeah. because I imagine I would have stuck with them yeah. and I would be living a very different life. So it's kind of, it's not really regret. It, it's like... It's an interesting thought It's experiment. an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. yeah. And it's one I have frequently as well because I, I ne- I've never worked for anyone else. Yeah. Uh, other, I sold. So when we sold Real Sport, we were acquired by a company called Gfinity, big gaming company, uh, PLC. So it wasn't a startup, and it was very much run as a PLC. But I constantly think about: Would I have gone further? Would I have done better? Would I be better served having spent three years at a really, really amazing, high growth, massively venture backed startup just to see how they did it there? So it's a. Yeah. I think it's an experiment we always have as founders, right? Because it's if you've got that growth mindset that you know we know that there are so many learning opportunities out there that we miss, but I think ultimately being in the hot seat ourselves is probably going to be the, the the most value in yeah. terms of growth. Yeah. Okay, uh, my second to last question for you is, what does it take to be successful? I don't know yet. <laughs> oh, it depends on your definition of success, right? My definition of success, uh, I have not achieved yet. Mm-hmm. My definition of success for me is uh, not having to worry about money. I still worry about uh, every time I get delivery. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, not even, it's not worrying about money. It's like not 
over not having to double think, mm. double check myself if I want to go and have a nice dinner. Yeah. Doesn't have to be super expensive, doesn't have to be like Nobu or something, but like just just a dinner out with the where I spend maybe fifty pounds instead of twenty pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I still have to almost always say no when that's an option mm-hmm. because I yeah, we I don't have a uh, massive income right now. So my level of success is getting to that point where I'm mm-hmm. not worrying too much. And then uh, I've forgotten the question. What was Just it? what does it take to be successful? But but I think I mean, if that's it, financial security. Financial yeah. security. And then like I am hoping to start a family at some point. So having nice. the ability to uh, support that family and not worry that, uh, I can't make ends meet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really good one. Uh, a tough one as well, right? Because one takes you further away from the goal than the other, right? Yeah. <laughs> Having the family makes it even harder. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have kids. I don't know if I'll ever have kids. Um, it's something which I would do, but also, you know, I don't have that, like, burning, like, I need to have kids. Yeah. Um, But it's interesting because I think right now I can live very selfishly, and even though I'm comfortable... I even I know that if I lost everything, it wouldn't make a difference because I have no dependence. So I can imagine that having that family also creates that other level of psychological insecurity, concern, however you want to call it. So I think it's, uh, yeah, part of the human condition, right? Yeah. One of the biggest problems we all face. I think the one thing that I should mention as well is that um, it's not just monetary freedom that I would strive for. It would also be uh, time freedom. Yeah. Because right now, to get this off the ground. Like I did go away from my wedding for two weeks mm-hmm. and everyone in the team stood up like uh like um yeah, got involved and really helped the company keep going, mm-hmm. which was amazing. Mm-hmm. But I can't just like disappear for holidays every couple of weeks or something. No. Um and no. I would like to get to the point where I have the I I cannot imagine like retiring or stopping working. Yep. But to have the flexibility to say, okay, actually, I want to take a long weekend. Yeah. And then just buggering off for a bit. Yeah, yeah, And I think it does get to that point. In my experience, normally sort of, you know, you hit a certain level of, of organizational infrastructure and then you can have that. But what I found, for example, is um, almost having this, like, always working but flexibly. So I'll take calls on a Sunday. Yeah. But I might only work half of the day on the Monday or like whatever it might be. And I think it's, you know, you, you find that balance over time, yeah. but it's... Um, I am close to that. I'm just yeah. not quite there yet because when I'm not working, I'm like, I could be doing this thing. Oh, of course. That never stops. Right? <laughs> okay. That never stops, yeah. Um, okay, my last one for you is a 15-year-old Gabriel walks in the room right now. What are you going to tell him? I don't know. Uh, the, well, 15-year-old me was, I guess... Stay curious would be a, a nice, simple one. Don't worry too much would be another one. Mm-hmm. Um, there'd be a lot of little things. I wouldn't be able to say two words and, and leave it at that. I think, and be yourself, because I am unashamedly myself now. Like, people keep telling me, you're doing things wrong, and I'm like, I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> I really don't. I'm doing things my way, and I will continue doing things my way. Um, yeah, and... You got this, like, somehow giving him confidence because I didn't have confidence back then. Yeah. Also, actually, when I was 15, I was playing a lot of World of Warcraft. Mm -hmm. And while my parents didn't like it, uh, it was very useful for me 
because it taught me social skills. It taught me like leadership skills because mm-hmm. I would lead things and it taught me how to touch type. Um, and I think I got into World of Warcraft when I was 14, 15. So I would tell them to keep at it for a little while. Nice. Okay. <laughs> Great. Amazing. What do you want to plug? Uh, well, my company, which is Tutti. Uh, at the moment, we look like Airbnb for creative spaces. So you can find and book amazing spaces for film shoots, photo shoots, rehearsals, recordings, performances, exhibitions, anything creative. We have over 2,000 spaces across the UK, mostly in London. And uh, anyone who has an amazing space and wants to accept any of those types of bookings can list with us for free. Uh, And we will help you get amazing bookings from all sorts of people. And where can people find it? Uh, www.tutti.space. Amazing. Gabriel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for watching the episode. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit subscribe below so that you can support the podcast and we can keep on bringing you amazing new guests. If you want to see the other amazing episodes in this podcast, click into our series section. As ever, if there are any other guests or topics you want us to explore, just let me know in the comments and we'll do our best to bring someone in.